How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 225. You know where my glasses are, Zeke? Where are your glasses? They're over there on the floor. Your glasses. My glasses. So I'm going to have to blow up this that, Word yeah. document quite a bit. That's probably the oldest uh, joke, I reckon, over the course of our podcast, just saying that line. Have we said it on the podcast? Have we? I feel like we say it off the... We, we say it a lot, and yeah. My glasses. Poor Millhouse. Yeah. Poor me. <laughs> I was down gotta, the river. <laughs> gotta get a gotta get a um Simpsons reference. Yeah, there were quite a few Simpsons references from last week's film, Close Encounters, that I refrained from pointing out. Zeke, because I just could have gone on forever. Yes. You know, Homer making a a circus out of like mashed potato or whatever it is in the film could have been plenty, but of course we're not talking about Close Encounters. Zeke, this is a whole new episode. A whole new week. Yes. Director's Corner. Absolutely. So I'm very excited to talk about the so, man, the legend, Kabuchi. The Italian, Sergio Kabuchi. <laughs> so do you have fun, a fun fact? I certainly Trivia do. Trivia for me. I certainly do. So, I mean, you could go the easy route and say, oh, this is the film that inspired Django Unchained. Let's mm. avoid <laughs> that one. I think that this is really interesting. Uh, the graphic violent content of the film led to it being banned in several countries and was rejected by the UK until 1993. And it was never rated in the US. So, ah. you know, we can talk about the hyper hyperbolic violence of Kobuchi films, especially for the time when it comes to his director's corner in the second half of the show. But yeah. I think that sets a precedent for what we're going to be talking about in the second half today. Yeah, for sure. It's funny because one of the films I'm going to mention in a moment I saw in cinemas the other day has an R rating, which I was like, oh, wow. Like, it's kind of rare, I feel like, nowadays. Um, we'll get into that soon. We'll talk about the rating and the violence and the horror and all of that. Um, but you're right, that Capucci sort of dabbled in with his spaghetti westerns. Um, I am also not going to mention that Tarantino was, of course, heavily inspired by the film. Of course. So it is unsaid despite the fact that I just said it. However, there is a television series, an Italian-French television series, that is a much more direct reimagining of the original Kabuchi film from 1966. It is actually on SBS On Demand for free and started airing just three months ago. So we picked a hell of a time to to do this film. Good timing. Yeah, there's ten episodes. I don't know if that's the whole run, if they're going to do like a season two. But if you want to watch a more modern version of Django... Go on SPS On Demand. There you go. Gotta love SPS On Demand. Yeah. Speaking of SPS On Demand, Jake, have you caught anything in the last week? Oh, not on SPS On Demand, I haven't. <laughs> well, before that, Zeke... Oh, I totally forgot. This is, is the film on the poster behind you. 1,100 films you must watch once in your wow. lifetime. Is Django on the poster? I think Unchained would be on it. Um, I'm going to go yes, it is on the poster. Neither are on the poster. Wow. Neither Django... Or Unchained, which just tells a... me that the poster hates Django's of all colours. <laughs> so I, I don't, I yeah, I don't know what to say other than that. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I, it's quite interesting because, you know, we'll talk about Capucci in the second half of the show, but, yes. you know, as someone who watched like that documentary Django Django and, and sort of having Tarantino talking about, he was a little bit of a, a sleeper hit of the 60s. Sure. Um, compared to, well, obviously... Some other some, Sergios in the area. Yes. <laughs> who Perhaps. sort of flagshipped the Spaghetti Western, but mm. that does not mean that he should be left unspoken about. 
but we'll talk about that in a second on the show. Absolutely. So, Jake, you didn't catch anything on SBS On Demand, but what did you catch in the last week? I got quite a few things, and in fact, it looks like we went on a bit of a similar trajectory, Zeke, this past week, because I looked at your letterbox, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. I've also watched a season of television Mm -hmm. and two other films, plus one of its sequels. So, I'm going to start with the film and its sequel, okay. which I alluded to a minute ago with The Violence. I watched The Evil Dead, 1981, which was actually on the last year's Countdown for the Decades. It lost to Top Gun. Yes. And I finally sat down and watched it. And I've also watched the new 2023 Evil Dead Rise that's currently in cinemas. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting case. I I gave both the films the same rating on Letterboxd, despite feeling like they're for very different audience audiences and have very different strengths Mm -hmm. so you go to the original evil dead it fits into that sort of scrappy low budget grindhouse film i figure like the hills have eyes and uh, texas chainsaw massacre and it is early very early 80s so it's kind of on the the latter end of of those films and i think it really works from that standpoint you got sam raimi's very early in his career his Mm -hmm. style you know the the sort of kinetic camera work and the intense close-ups and um there's a lot of really good use of stop motion and, and body horror prosthetics and visual effects and mm. just like all that style really flares. And then you've got the new one, which is kind of a soft reboot. It it's it has like a lot of the same beats where it's like, oh, um, you know, you have your woman who's in one version is tied up by vines in the forest and then this one is tied up by an elevator or one's trapped under the, the trap door and then in the new one is trapped outside the apartment door. So, like, it has those beats, which is like, okay, it's a soft reboot. Mm. They're kind of retreading the same beats, but in a completely different area with completely different characters as opposed to teenagers in a in a cabin in the woods. you got the more domesticated family in an apartment block, modern day. Uh, so there's, there's differences there. And the other one is the tone. Well, like I said, the other one, the original was more more flair, Sam Raimi's, Sam Raimi's kinetic style. This new one's a bit more sterile. It's a little bit more like modern horror. You, you know, you go and watch Smile or, you know, the new Halloween films. Or yeah. They, they kind of all feel very much the same, that weighted horror or it's like the slow uh, camera movements. You're sort of always scanning the screen. For, What's in the background? Where's the jump scare? Is the jump scare going to be a cat or is it going to be like a real creature jumping out at you? It's There's, you know, it's sterile, I think is the best way to put it. But I'm not trying to be demeaning like, by saying like, that. Sterile is a very fair point. Yeah. Even just like the color scheme. You know, it's like it's more blue and yeah, just, yeah, I'm trying to think of another way to describe that. Um, with that being said, I'm, I'm making it seem like the original was like so much better because of the way I'm talking about its style and mm. it's the camera movement and that. But in all honesty, I kind of took away very little from both films, if I'm going to be honest. I actually did like the new one and that it has way more character development. The original just doesn't care. Here are characters. Most of them are going to die. For some reason, Bruce Campbell is like... A, his character actually is like really renowned and respected in the zeitgeist. And like, he's just like a dude. <laughs> that gets to slap his demonic girlfriend around from time to time. Um, and that's the other big difference is it's a lot less comedic. The new one's obviously much more violent and, like, takes its violence seriously. And, mm. you know, as opposed to the, the slapstick of the original, it's like there's a cheese grater going through someone's skin. It's all very cringy and hard to look at, that kind of violence, um, which stems, I guess, the R rating that it got. Uh, but in terms of character, there's a bit more there to, to uh, chew on. You got the sister character who is pregnant and 
it's unspoken, which I love, this idea that everything she's doing is in service of trying to prove to herself that she will be a good mother. And once you kind of click that, and again, the film doesn't make it obvious, there's no big monologue about that's her arc. Yeah. You kind of just like pick up on it as the film progresses, and when you do, you're like, okay, well, I kind of know who's going to die and who's going to survive now based on this theme, but I like that it's there, and I think it actually adds a little bit more to the story that the original doesn't. Uh, and I'm sure there's more callbacks and odes and things like that in Evil Dead 2 and all its sequels that mm. I wouldn't have caught just watching the original and then the new one back-to-back. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I didn't take a whole lot away from either, but I thought their differences were very, very intriguing. Um, now, I noticed, Zeke, you watched a film and its sequel mm. as well in the last week. Yeah, um, I think I'm going to be echoing the not taking a lot away from it. Okay. <laughs> um, last week, I talked about Bad Mums and Bad Mums 2. Um, yes. You know, these... You can take a hot guess when I'm watching these films. They're getting logged. Who am I watching them with? I'm obviously watching them with my partner, Lucinda. But um, we sort of sat down Friday night and, yeah, we I did tackle um, Jennifer Aniston, Adam Sandler's uh, whodunit, comedies, mm. murder mystery, and murder mystery 2. Um, murder mystery has redeemable qualities to it. I've, I've, I think I've said on the show, I've never been a massive Adam Sandler comedy fan. Sure. Um, it's the same thing with Jim Carrey. I just never really got on the happy Gilmore or the, uh, dumb and dumber train or, right. um, I think, um, there are some films, I think Sandler for me is more consumable than Carrey is, but really, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say okay. so. Um, I think. He's, they're both at their best when they're doing more serious roles. I think Sandler's found a perfect balance sometimes of being serious but still comedic with obviously things like Uncut Gems, even Hustle to right. an extent. Um, obviously, these centre around um, Sandler is a uh, police officer who's sort of in a rut in his life, wanting to be a detective but can't quite get the job done. Uh, he's in a sort of a f- marriage with Jennifer Aniston who... Um, doesn't really ever exit Jennifer Aniston. I think she's pretty much the same person in every movie. Right. It's like two <laughs> actors that don't really exit their, uh, their caricatures. Um, I think the first one's definitely got moments that actually made me laugh, which at the end of the day is, is the main purpose of of them, um, of these films. But the second one uh, has no arcs or plots. or anything. It's just basically they decide to become private investigators after solving the first movie's murder and right and they get thrust into another situation it's it's quite weak the second film um i don't think there's a lot re- very good about it redeemable mm. i don't think we'll see a murder mystery three um well they, i my understanding is they they get a lot of viewership they're very highly consumable and i think they get so a lot they of will. hits on that maybe they will. So. um so, I doubt it's quality that's stopping these movies from being pumped out, especially on Netflix. <laughs> I just, I'm watching them, and I was saying this to Lucinda, I was like, man, there was just something about the aughties in particular, mm. that 2000 to like 2008 period of the four-quadrant comedy that just seemed better mm. and and tighter, whether... Maybe it was because we weren't as tiptoey on political correctness, but it's like with the green lit, like the green lighting of, of Dodgeball Two. Mm. Think about some of the jokes that are in Dodgeball. Yeah, is that going to work in a twenty twenty three climate? 
Like, is yeah. that particular film going to stand the test of time or even a sequel? Um, not saying that, like, comedies don't exist in this modern day, but they're so rare, a good comedy now. Like, mm. um, you know, I was so pleasantly surprised with the comedy and things like Dungeons and Dragons or, or a game night comes along that's just a very good comedy, but they, they yeah. seem few and far between now. Whereas, you know, if you look at that time, that, like, 2004 to, like, 2009, you know, you've got... Things like Wedding Crashes and Dodgeball and The Hangover. Like, yeah. There's a whole spectral range of comedies and they just seem to hit the mark. And I, for most part, I don't think that was their political incorrectness that made them funny. Maybe it was just the concepts were more I, entertaining. I mean, there's that aspect. There's like the, the comedic premise of like, let's look at The Hangover. Where it's like, oh, it's funny because like they, you know, they don't remember and maybe there's a, a tinge of relatability mm. to do bros who've gone through the scenario and then the craziness of them trying to find their friend and like, oh my God, there's this naked Asian dude in the trunk. But it's like, even that, it's like, like, can you make that joke again? I So I think, and it's, I don't think personal uh, political correctness is going to be the big difference between say the new dodgeball for example it's obviously going to be a lot more tiptoey i imagine because there were some i mean there's blatant like fat phobic jokes in the original dodgeball i i would be surprised if they tried to do it again in the second one but then i look at anchorman i'm someone who does not like the second anchorman at all just thinks it's lazy and boring and and very unfunny and i don't think that has anything to do with the political correctness i just remember watching and be like i don't find this funny it the stick it's missing the magic the stick Oh look, it's um Steve Carell has like a laser gun in their recreation of the big fight scene. It just yeah. didn't I, work for I, me. I will say it definitely I think it had a very thin a paper thin plot. And I could sure. say the same thing about Murder Mystery too. Yeah. I think the comedy still hit, but then that's also I think the actors that are involved are just better at comedy. Like I think Sandler's really good at comedy and I think mm-hmm. Aniston's really good at comedy in both their realms. Yeah. But I actually think their ensemble cast was not good at hitting the same Sure. Uh, beats, which, you know, like something like people still have an affinity for grown ups, but then that's also putting four or five of some of the best Aughties comedy actors in a space together. Yeah. They do naturally work really well with each other, and it makes for relatively entertaining uh, popcorn. The other thing as well is our age. Like, yeah. I, I loved grown ups when I watched it when I was, what, 12? Yeah. <laughs> and I've grown up and my taste has changed, and I realize, like, it's incredibly it's not even like so the easy. political correctness it's just how crude and like tame and immature the whole film yeah. is without being smart yeah so i i think there's an element of that i'm but, scrolling through my letterbox now because i feel like i watched something very recently that i thought i mean like cocaine bear i think these are the kinds of comedies we're gonna get this year is like here's a crazy absurdist absurdist that's like it's kind of crude and like oh but it's like a bear doing drugs yeah. And, like, part of the comedy in that is, like, oh, some of the kids accidentally do drugs as well, and it's funny because they're kids and shouldn't be doing that. So, I think it's not so much, like, you're going to get more rude comedies this year, and you've got the stray with Will Ferrell as a dog, which I think is a funny premise, this idea of a dog that has a, a horrible owner but, like, is obsessed with that owner. I think that's a funny concept, and it's crude, and, and there's going to be a lot of really inappropriate jokes in there, but I think that's the key is that it's mm. not, like, the fat-shaming you know, very transphobic jokes that were in, like, Scary Movie, for example. Yeah. Which you watched a few weeks ago. Oh, I watched a few weeks ago again. Um, I think that's where you're going to see the difference. There's also the uh, Jennifer Lawrence one, which is trying to sleep with a 17-year-old. And, like, there are going to be some people like, that's just ridiculous, that premise, I don't even like it. But yeah. There's going to be a lot of people like, ah, let's see it. Let's see it. it might yeah. be fun. 
what's what, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> um, I just not asked that question. <laughs> did you catch anything else? I did. So um, speaking of movies, they didn't quite hit the mark for me. Um, for Andy's movie night last Saturday, we watched a little mo- movie called Moonfall, uh, which you might have heard I of. I did hear of that. That it was came um, out a year ago. Yeah, it was like one of them sort of sci-fi films that comes out and. and is in the cinema for like less than two weeks and then just <laughs> disappeared. There were a lot of people surprised that it was even in cinemas at all after our viewing. So the category was disaster film. Um, and I voted for The Swarm. Of course, a classic film from the 70s where a bunch of bees uh, kill a bunch of people and blow up a nuclear power plant and do all sorts of craziness. And of course, Erwin uh, Allen's film was beat out by the legend, the disaster legend, Robert Ermidge. Uh, so obviously Independence Day in 2012, and he's made a lot of these big disaster films. And this one was just very silly, very convoluted. I mean, the title, it's about the moon crashing down onto Earth. And it kind of baits you a little bit because you start off with, it feels like gravity when you start. You're in space and it's kind of got these long, slow takes and they're actually taking care with the sound design where you know they're going to take advantage of the fact that there should not be sound in space. And it's like, okay, this is interesting. I like when they take the science seriously mm. and it very quickly stops taking the science seriously where it turns into star wars where the ship's doing flips and and being chased through space and all the interesting high concept ideas about alien civilizations and ai technology and all of that are, are cancelled out by big dumb explosions terrible cgi some of it's not bad but some of it is also very terrible uh way too many characters with way too many character arcs it's just like whiz by there's no time to take any of it in the film spent 15 minutes of its two and a half hour run talking about the main character's son being in prison. And like, that's his debt. His thing to NASA is I won't, I'm not going to stop that moon until you get my son out of jail. I was like, dude, the world's about to explode. (laughs) Do we really need this much time for this exposition? Like I would believe it. If you're like, I don't want to get blown up. I'm going to help you. (laughs) That's all I needed to see. (laughs) Oh, so I have to mention Moonfall simply because I watched it and it wasn't like offensively bad. Yeah. That's all I'll say. $146 million at the box. Uh, budget for the film pulling only 67.3 back. So oh, yikes. Big loss. Big loss. Yikes. What about you, Zeke? You saw another film this week. Actually, I forgot what it was. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about them both sort of. In, I actually saw a series. Saw- a series, okay, a ten-episode series, yes, and another film. Um, the film obviously uh, is a rom-com. Uh, came out a couple of years ago and a very positive reception at the time, and now has an Oscar-winning actress in it. That is mm. Crazy Rich ah, Asians. Right. Very good. Obviously Michelle Yeoh in that too, um, and centers around uh, sort of uh, a Chinese-American woman who's sort of just very middle class. She's a she's actually a very successful person um who discovers that her partner of like a year is like super rich crazy rich even there you go um this sort of has the same sort of ensemble cast magnitude of something like the farewell um does feature aquafina in it also um it's the avengers endgame (laughs) well yeah and i mean this got a lot of positive this was kind of one of those first films to take the the step to sort of introduce at least western eyes to cultural exploration of Mm. of of asian culture and obviously this is set in singapore so actually singaporean uh people which i find quite interesting and obviously this massive distinction between uh 
Chinese people that are based out of China and then obviously Chinese American people and the yeah. culture clash that comes with that. It's explored a little bit in the farewell. Um, I definitely think Aquafine is more just a an observ- observing character as we just explore explicit parts of that culture. Hmm. Um, it's just a fun film. It's yeah. a fun. It's it, it's like you said. It's it, it's like this massive ensemble cast, like the farewell meets the Great Gatsby, right? Because okay. it has that stylism, it has, it has it. that flair, um, and it actually has really um, compelling performances all round. Um, I find these films uh, always so pleasant to watch. I've been meaning to watch Crazy Rich Asians for so long. Yeah, I still uh, haven't seen it. I remember that was a landmark film of its time, just in terms of representation and yeah, yeah. And for that reason alone, it's it's sort of worth it. Like it, you're not going to. It's a great movie, a great date night film mm. if you haven't seen it. Because gee, it, it's an easy two hour watch. It's good in scale. It's it's a little interesting because you know it's having this person that you know for obviously us as Caucasian viewing, you know, she's an economics professor at a very prestigious university mm. that's deemed pretty successful in the eyes of most people. Some would push, you know, she lives in New York City in a pretty decent apartment and stuff, mm. so she's definitely doing well for herself. But she just pales in comparison to this traditionalist dynasty family, right? Um, and it's it's interesting for that reason, but it's nice yeah. too. Yeah, it's a good film. Um, Excellent. Last thing I'm going to talk about is, you know, uh, we're going to talk about beef. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a surprise. They got they got beef, this couple. Well, you know what? And it's such a surprise that I'm surprised you haven't actually sat down and watched it yet. If, uh, no, I've, I, I've seen a million things about it. I haven't got to it yet. Um, it's an A24 series, which is okay. interesting in its own right, having an... A24 series. Yeah, well, they do Euphoria. That's that's yeah. a thing most people don't really actually know. Um, obviously starring uh, Ali Wong and Stephen Yun, mm-hmm. um, who obviously Stephen's already been entwined with A24 with Minari. Uh, but uh, look, it's just, it's fantastic. It's Excellent. really, really good. Um, it's funny. It's depressing. It ebbs and flows. Little bit of a. I have to admit, the last episode was I a bit, it's pro- a bit con- not controversial, but like a lot of people saying it could have ended an episode early, or yeah. that they weren't a big fan of the last episode. I think the last episode doesn't really do much to the the plot. I think there are some immeasurably good scenes in the show. I think both Wong and Yoon get moments to shine. I think it's really easy. I think what has to be credit is Ali Wong, who I'm pretty sure is a comedian first, actor second. Sure, yeah. Whew. Great. Some dramatic moments. She's fantastic. <laughs> I think she's fantastic point to point. I mean, she holds her own. Yeah. I think that he still gets maybe one moment that really tilts it still to, wow, he's just an amazing actor. Right. And it's so good to see someone who comes out of Walking Dead with yeah. such a... You know, to have this level of... Like, he's going to win an Oscar at mm. some point. Mark my words. In the next 10 years, you'll probably see Steven Yeun winning an Oscar, I reckon. So, I mean, Is it his did, time? Could be his time. Just needs the right project, I think. Yeah. But um, I assume that this would be qualifying for all of the TV awards, technically, so... Is it a limited series, or is there going to be season two? No, season... It's limited series. It is? Okay. The ending... I think the ending is most definitely pretty... I'd be very surprised if we saw Beef Season 2. It really would make okay. no sense. 
Fair enough. Um, so yeah, my sweep in the uh, limited awards category. I think I think Succession has pretty much claimed all Emmys. Uh, if it didn't buy episode three, it's certainly done it by now. We're not even near the end of the show. Yeah, I I think for me, what I liked about it, big standouts were yeah the the comedy, the stylism. It does feel like it's so A twenty four in its feeling. Like even like right. it cuts the vibes. To it. The vibes. Well, every title card <laughs> is like this obscure reference in the episode, but then it's like this. Or totally experimental artwork it's on but it's like oh I have seen like a montage of all of them yeah and it's like so like that to me just scream I'm like yep this is A24 yeah um, <laughs> it's got the vibes it does have the vibes it's great I think it's I'd be it definitely will get some recognition a lot of people really like it and yeah full props it's a great Excellent. idea of basically how two people in two socio-economically different uh, worlds mm. Uh, find themselves in the same states of depression. Really good way of representing Interesting. depression. Interesting. Okay. Um, I was thinking I'll always be my maybe vibes, which I think she's also in. Cheers. But uh, this sounds a bit more like it goes Ooh, deep, no, deeper. It goes way deeper. <laughs> it goes Is dark. Keanu Reeves in this one as well? Probably no. Not. <laughs> no he's not cr- I mean, he's not crying to no. music. Fair enough. <laughs> well, to pinpoint it off that, I also watched a season of television. Stephen finally got me to sit down and watch Barry. On a binge or HBO, of course. Uh, Bill Hader kind of doing his Jason Bateman serious turn from Ozark, but this one he's writing and directing as well as starring as the lead. And uh, the reason I was sort of pushed over the edge is because, like Succession, it's also in its fourth and final season. Uh, it's going to wrap up, I think, any week now or in a couple of weeks. Uh, and there's only four seasons, eight episodes per season, and about twenty-five to thirty minutes per episode. So I was mm, like, that's, that's actually yeah. I was like, you know what? Okay, this is kind of short. I can kind of smash through it quickly before the season or the series ends. So I watched all the season one, taking a few days. I'll, I'll probably finish it over the next week or at least catch up uh, to where they're up to now in season four. But I quite enjoyed it. I went in very blind. So from its opening pan reveal shot, I was like, I have no idea what I'm in for, learning about the character. And oh, we're introduced to this killer, much like Baby and Baby Driver, someone who's sort of in this, feels trapped in a crime world, can't quite see, you know, the end of the tunnel. Uh, and during one of the jobs ends up on a theater stage and it's where he's almost exposes this like complete blank canvas and it starts him on his journey of going from someone who has no personality outside of his narrow like antisocial job as a murderer to someone who is in the spotlight and has to be emotionally vulnerable on the stage as an actor mm. and it, it's kind of like a silly fun little premise of you know oh, assassin has to become an actor um, and all the comedic and dramatic turns of the story stem from that. Uh, the fact it's funny that he's more nervous about doing a performance than murdering someone. Or the fact that now that he's on stage and he's meeting people who get him on social media and now the cops are turned to him and more people are being drawn into his dangerous lifestyle. And it kind of all stems from that basic premise. And it does it really well. It gets really dark by the end. I can only imagine how dark it's going to get <laughs> in the later seasons. But... I'm very much enjoying it. I think Bill Hader's great in it. He's kind of got that same stiff, goofy energy that a lot of his characters do, but mm-hmm. it, it kind of works in this scenario because you almost want him to be like a super cool assassin, but he just quite... There's always like some weird awkwardness mm. to all of his actions, uh, even though he is a super badass assassin. And like, <laughs> he's had some serious gun training for this role. Because he def- when, he has to, when he has to make some moves, he pulls some moves. Uh, but Barry, very much enjoying it. 
I've watched the remainder of the series up until where we're up to now. I think it ends later this month. Uh, so that in succession, big HBO shows going down. Yeah. Well, um, I guess, well, before we move into the second half of the mm. show, normally we do career updates. Do you have yes. anything you'd like to add? Well, I, I was going to suggest, because we're both, we're both writers. You yes. know, we're both, you're writing a script right now. I've obviously written stuff before. Um, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the writer struggle. I'm so glad on. I literally had that. <laughs> <laughs> that was my segue. So that's, there you uh, go. that's I, really good. I think that's exactly what we should be talking about right now. I've written some notes and I've been paying a lot of attention to this because, you know, I can't remember if I said, I think I said this last week on the show. I was talking about a completely different thing, uh, but I said, I always err on the, uh, on the side of sympathy when it comes to just like discussions. And then maybe let's call this a battle if you will. <laughs> a battle between the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So for those who don't know, they're currently on strike. The last big strike happened back in, I think, 2007. So you saw a lot of shows get affected there, like, um, off the top of my head, like Lost, mm. Prison Break, Breaking Bad, uh, Mad Men, I believe. And pretty much everything that was airing in that year was affected. Their seasons were shortened, or the writing had a significant decrease in quality. Uh, reality TV boomed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's likely we're going to see all of that happening again. I mean, right now, and I uh, hope you don't mind me going on a little bit of a tangent. I just want to kind of set the scene before we get into our feelings. Uh, but all um, late night shows are currently on hiatus. So late night with John Oliver, Saturday Night Live, all that kind of stuff, just off the air doing reruns. Um, and in terms of what the writers are calling for, for their, this is every three years that their minimum basic agreement uh, contract is updated. So they simply had just not met the terms of the contract together, and that's why they went to strike. People kind of predicted this was going to happen. Uh, There's a great video. It's a writer's room with uh, some of the writers. you got Craig Mason from Last of Us, but you got some of the writers from um, Shrinking and Swarm and some of these newer shows that are out. They do a great panel discussion. They talk about this days before it actually happened. So it was like an interesting foresight into where their mindset was. Uh, in terms of the things they're asking for, we're talking about bread and butter residuals and the fact that uh, their television residuals are drying up because there's just a lot less people watching television now. Mm-hmm. So they want to update these contracts to better reflect streaming residuals, uh, which the uh, AMPTP is very much against. They're trying to downplay the percentage of residuals they're going to get. Uh, the other thing they're trying to fight against is the mini room. This idea, and I had no idea about this. The traditional thing that would happen is you would have someone write a pilot script for a television show they would get greenlit to produce that pilot they would shoot it they would you know edit it present it to the studio and they would greenlit or not an entire season to follow that pilot that's when they would hire all their writers and they would have guaranteed work for the next six to 12 months writing the show it is a lot more common nowadays for a bunch of writers to be hired to outline an entire season before the show was greenlit which means they're getting paid virtually nothing this whole time. And if the show doesn't get greenlit, then they've just wasted several months of their time mm. getting very minimal pay, or it gets greenlit and they all get fired for a new writing team. So they don't have guaranteed work afterwards. So these are the kinds of things they're fighting for. Uh, the other thing is AI, which is actually not as big of a part as people have been talking about, this whole AI situation. Uh, simply what they've stipulated is that they want AI or chat GPT specifically to not be able to 
use any of the MBA covered material that they've written as resources or for them to be hired to rewrite content that has been written by AI. Yeah, and, and also um, mm. to get uh, financial uh, compensation if they're utilizing the tool. Right. So that's what I've just been reading just then is that a big part of obviously using it is it's totally okay to be using as a tool to facilitate script writing, but then they also want to be compensated or not intrinsically involved. Okay. Reading here specifically, but that's interesting because my, my understanding was that basically none of the material that they're writing that would be covered by the MBA would like not be touched by AI. So it goes, writers uh, also want artificial intelligence such as ChatGPT to only be used as a tool that can help them research or facilitate script ideas and not be a tool to replace them. So that's from The Hollywood Reporter. Interesting. Obviously, I think that there's, like you said, it's not a massive part of this, but this is a conversation that is going to become more and more relevant. And I'm glad it's already being broached this early on. Mm. Yeah. that's kind of the only way they can do it, and the thing, the interesting thing is that most of the things they've been trying, they they put up being like, hey, we want this as part of our contract. Um, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers have pretty much just not counted most of it. They've just straight up ignored it. But for AI in particular, their counter was we will have annual meetings to discuss like what to do with AI, which for me I think is them just prolonging the inevitable, or rather trying to bite time. Because I think mm. you're right. The only way to really tackle this is to do it early and now and legally. And, you know, if the AMPTP are able to prolong that discussion to the point where it's, like, too late, it's now AI is really good and able to <laughs> write content that people will gobble up because I think a lot of people, sadly, will just gobble up whatever the AI spits out. And if writers don't act now and get these contracts in place, they're, they're toast. They're completely toast. So I don't think they have a choice but to do this now. They can't afford to wait any longer. So I guess my question to you, Zeke, I I imagine... Oh, I'm not even going to say this. Well, what's your stance with all the things I just mentioned, all the practices that are going on, the writers wanting more basic wages, uh, better residuals for streaming in particular for their content, and also to avoid the mini writing room practices become uh, sort of... Uh, what's the word, normalized over the last few years, as far as I'm aware of. Do you think those are all fair things to be talking about with the Writers Guild? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, the, you know, and a big part that's been put forward by mainstream media is is this um, lack of equilibrium between uh, those at the top that aren't, you yes. know, these producers and this disparity of income and obviously not being entitled to some of the takings if a film is commercially successful. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that is definitely something that needs to be more accessible. I think the whole system has always been very beneficial to those who basically set up the business. But then... Mm. Um, well, like the CEOs of the producing companies and whatnot. Yeah, and it's, you know, the end of the day, like you said when one, this happened 15 years ago, it just led to spikes in reality TV and stuff. Mm. So, you know, every action that's taken, 
leads to some other industry benefiting. So those who are working in reality TV will be undergoing a, a boom in their, their area through popularity and mm. maybe that leads to financial compensation there. But I, I think with everything happening, I for me, I I like that they've put forward the, the AI conversation because that, to me, feels like that's going to become the real elephant in the room mm. if it doesn't get addressed. It's dangerous. Very dangerous. It's dangerous, but it's one of those things that really, fundamentally, it should elevate. Because um, I'm, I'm a bit of an advocate for these AI programs. I've been, you know, obviously in teaching. I think it's a really important resource there. In these creative mediums, I think it helps people that are struggling with ideas to sort of flesh them out a little bit more because it almost is used as like a help, a help to complement someone's thought process. Um, I don't think it can replace... I mean, I've been experimenting with ChatGPT for mm. six, seven months, and I can't remotely get it to write stuff that's as good or as authentic as what a human can write. Right. And yeah, you could say, oh, well, it's only a matter of time before that happens. But at the end of the day, it, I don't see it replacing it, even if you gave it your full story. So say we take you know 1966 Django and mm. we take the full synopsis of that film or the plot outline and go generate me a 90 page script Mm. based on this i just don't think it would produce it to the same quality or it would lack any sort of directorial or writer nuance i mean maybe you could go i'll write it in a kabuchi style and maybe it comes close maybe who knows yeah i think the danger there though is this idea that producers could potentially just do that and have a very rough 90 minute draft that is, you know, depending on how good the AI gets, and from my understanding, it's getting good very quickly. Yes. Then they only have to pay a writer to come in for a week and clean it up, as opposed to paying a writer for several months to actually build it from scratch and add the heart. And I know it sounds like more efficient from that standpoint, but to writers who are trying to make a living wage, we're talking about writers, and I and I understand it's easy for people to, to flog this off or to not understand because oh it's Hollywood everyone makes money there it's like no no and like a lot of the big takeaways from from this being revealed that you know an award winning writer for the bear accepted the award wearing a bow tie that he got on credit like these aren't rich people these are people begging for a living wage and AI presents an opportunity for producers to give them less work to give them less hours and it's, yeah, it's dangerous for their lifestyle. I mean, you, the so, WGA have summarized that the collective, everything they're asking for, like all the uh, changes in percentages and contracts and everything, amounts to about $429 million per year increase on how much uh, pay they're going to get, which you divvy it up between 11,500 members. That's $37,000 per person per year. You make more than that. Mm. And I'm not trying to you know, belittle what you do, of course. I mean, teaching is very important. But if you're a writer on a show that has millions and millions and millions of views on Netflix, you should be able to pay your fucking mortgage. Yeah. And I I, I think it's totally fair what they're asking for, and I think it's totally unfair how they're being treated, especially when now that the strike's on, we're seeing the effect it's having. We're well, going to see a lot of TV shows get delayed. I think the final season of Cobra Kai is one of the ones that's yep. going to get... and. Like you said, this can also severely depreciate if they rush it, depreciate the quality of the show and the quality yes. of the writing. Um, and, you know, the res- the result of what 15 years ago was most of their demands weren't met. They just 
kind of went back and kept moving forward. They got yeah. some things. I think they got like a what, two to three percent pay increase or something like that. It was something <laughs> minuscule. Yeah. Um, and it is. It's it's deeply concerning because, like you said, the the top end's making a lot of money. I think. You know, you look at how much an actor makes on a on a set, and then you yeah. see the and it's like how the much actor, the writers are getting paid yeah, for that and, equivalent work. Yeah, and uh, and you want to be like, I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter how good an actor you are if you're not given the right script, mm. you're never going to look. At best, you can give if a if a actor is given a bad script, we go well, they did the best that what they could with what they were given. But <laughs> then if they're given a good script, they win an Oscar and then they get paid twenty million dollars to yep. Yep. be in a you know and. It's it is definitely that's a disparity there yeah. to me. Um you know, I know you're a capitalist. Um <laughs> but that doesn't really make sense. And then you can argue it's like, oh okay, but the star like you know, the star or the starlet's the draw, that's the reason why the film makes so much money. Yeah. yeah. But if a film's critically acclaimed for its script writing, get well, like you said, they're getting paid less than thirty seven thousand dollars. Yeah. And like um, when it when it comes to that, it's like yeah, self proclaimed capitalist. That is true, but it's like from where I'm standing from, that supports the WGA entirely because they're they're putting their money where their mouth is in terms of all right, well let's stop doing the work and see what happens from that standpoint. And the people who are making a quarter of a billion dollars a year, Warner Brothers, those heads, like let's see how long they survive with oh we're really running out of content. And my biggest fear is like you said, Zeke, with the last strike is. Is it all just going to fizzle out, and they go back to these dire? I, I mean, it's very likely. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing great comes of this. It's also the the aspect of you know they've got these industry experienced people, but outside of that industry, mm. employment's quite difficult. They yep. either go get a job that's beneath their pay already, or they just have to suck it up and take what they're given because. They're in a world where it's like, if you're a, a writer for TV, that's great. And, you know, you can make a full-blown career out of that. But say if that gets taken away from you, where do you go? Like, yeah. reality TV, maybe? You're riding, but they don't need that many writers in reality TV. They need someone to kind of roughly steer the ship. Um, what do they do? They just become a teacher. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but that's that's pretty much it. I mean, what else can they do? Yeah. They come a t- teacher or a tutor, or like... And then there's such a minuscule amount of jobs in that field mm. relating to that particular niche skill. And then that's also a problem. Yeah. I, th- I think at the end of the day, you know, we especially like when COVID happened and we saw here in Australia, a lot of the um, the arts funding was like the first thing to go. And mm-hmm. there was just a deep under... It's not even underappreciation of art because the appreciation's there and it's in the numbers. It's in how many people have Netflix accounts and you know how many billions of dollars each Spider-Man film makes. It's like it's all there. Mm. Um, it's just a collection of people who don't understand the intrinsic value of that. So when you're being, you're someone who maybe binges a TV show and it's something that you know gives you calm and solace from a hard day's work. But then it's the first thing you say needs to go when it comes to, you know, the trickle-down economics or, you know, we need to prioritize farming and, and this and that and mining and all these things. And it's like, yeah, that's all great. But at the end of the day, entertainment has a huge value in society. And I think these writers, again, they're putting their money where their mouth is. They've 
they're going on strike. 98% of the guild voted yes to go on strike. Because I think they know that their work is important and it should be valued monetarily. And they're not asking for that much. They really aren't. No. So, and in the time that we've been doing this show, the head of Warner Brothers has made over a billion dollars based on last year's earnings projection. Like, <laughs> he could spare it. He could spare a couple of bucks. And I'm not saying it from a charitable standpoint. I'm saying to end this strike and continue doing business as just... Yeah, anyway. And we're looking... It's a complex I mean, conversation. No, is it, but it isn't really, is it? I mean, it's pretty... <laughs> they're underpaid. Pay them all. It's how strikes work. You know, this yeah. is... At the end of the day, like I said, the fact that you've got a vote of 90%, that's... That's insane. That's clear... That is a clear opinion. A transparent opinion that's clearly saying... And a consensus that we clearly... That we feel overworked, underpaid... And we want to be paid more. I mean, the last strike lasted just over four months. Mm. And look at the impact that had. If this lasts four to five months... And I, I would argue, in that 15 years, the content, expectation for content, is tripled. Mm. I mean, with all of these streaming platforms... Yes. ...that are churning out content non-stop, like you said, they're going to run out of ideas. They're going to run out of backlog very, very quickly. Much mm. quicker than... 15 years ago when yep. they had all of their content was just on television and television did not nearly have as many time slots as what mm. is now you know this is the this is the thing you know you know you're you look at the list and right now you know some shows are lucky they've just wrapped up you know writers on like succession and stuff like that obviously yeah. don't have to do anymore writing on succession that's my favorite sign though is one of the protests is um you know, give us a pay rise or we'll spoil succession. <laughs> Which is fair to that point. It's like, what what's the first thing we praise about that show? It's writing. Writing. You know, it, that's all it comes back to. Because the dominoes fall after that. Oh, Sarah Snook's performance is really good. Oh, exactly. The direction, this and that. And it's like, it all comes back to writing. That's what the directors and actors always say. Like, oh, it's easy to do when you have great writing. But you can't pay him though. <laughs> And this is my thing, but it's like, though, you know, those actors say that, but then they'll take 20 million while Barry's getting 36 grand, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, <yeah>. like, <laughs> it's like, okay, but you're not really, you know, for my opinion, yeah, that curve needs to start flattening a little bit because yeah. your writers should not be getting paid that kind of money, especially if they're three, four seasons into a, an Emmy award winning show. Yeah. Like, how does that work? Yeah. You know, it's, maybe it's if your show, your show's crap, <laughs> but <laughs> if your show is commercially successful and critically successful, surely it's like the actors, you know, they get to a certain point, they renew, oh, they only had the contract till season two because they knew if the show was successful, they'll renew it to the end of the show, but get a lot more money Yeah, because they're not dispensable. But that's the other problem as well is like in terms of, yeah, dispensability. It's like, well, if you recast someone in a television show because their contract, that's a much bigger deal then if one or two of the writers get swapped out, yes, most people won't be able to tell the difference. Maybe. Maybe they'll notice a dip in quality. But it's like, we talk about, you know, we rank Stranger Things seasons. Like, oh, third season probably the worst. And then season four was a great step up. How many people are actually going in and checking the writers' rooms? And like, oh, well, you know, who actually wrote for season three and then not wrote for season four? And yeah. Most people don't do that research. That I can name all the shows in one hand where I, like, I know the writers' staff by name. Breaking yeah. Bad and Better Call Saul. 
That's a lot of crossover there. Yeah. Jonathan Nolan, first season of Westworld. Yeah. Like, only the first season. But then you, oh, yeah, and then you look at um, True Detective. Yeah. Where it's like, it's not a writer's room, it's one writer. Yeah. So there's those scenarios as well. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we aligned on that um, wanting to talk about it. I think you need so to. to speak. I think yeah. what's well, important for the industry. That's where the that's what the career sections for because, yeah, it impacts our career. And like we're not explicitly writers. We're sure. not pursuing that career path. I mean, if I was given the option to do that for a living, I hundred percent would. Yeah. But I got to you know. But we've done the work. We know what it is to write. Hard work. And oh, I, look, I don't want WGA. I don't want an AI or a machine to take my job. But I don't. I mean. It won't ever take my job because it's not really my job. I write right. and I'll make films, but I don't do that for my living. Sure. So, um, yeah, I can see the concern for people's livelihood on that front. Yeah, it's scary. Well, we wish them all the best. We'll see how it goes over the coming, I guess, months. Yeah, we might presumably. be returning to this conversation quite a few times. Mm. Jake, it's yes. time for us to move into our latest director's corner and the 19... 19- 60s film in our countdown through the decades number four mm. jake what's the film we're watching and well who's the director and what's the film we're watching well to answer the question in sequence order <laughs> we're talking about sergio capucci's django django an audacious man of action capable of a tender hopeless love which could only last a day but a day which was worth all eternity I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. Very glad. I mean Django. A new, ruthless, violent film. Featuring a great new star, Franco Nero. And a great supporting cast. Coffin-dragging gunslinger and a prostitute become embroiled in a bitter feud between a clan of southern racists and a band of Mexican revolutionaries. So, this is not the source material of Tarantino's film. No. Despite the name, despite the theme music, despite the time period, despite the KKK. Has nothing to do with it, Zeke. No. Nothing. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> They're just strange. It's, I can't believe it. Um, obviously, <laughs> there's a massive affinity that uh, Tarantino has for um, Kabuchi's work in particular. Yes. Obviously, like I said, appearing in the documentary Django Django. Um, but, and his hyper-violent style, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit. Unfortunately, sure. didn't get to see any other Kabuchi films mm. in the last week. Um, so we'll just use this as the focus. I have watched that documentary, so it is nice going hand-in-hand with this conversation. That's good. Both seem pretty positive about this film, Jake. 
Yeah. No, I I very much enjoyed Django. Now I was I was kind of glad to learn the how actual few ties this does have the Tarantino song because I didn't have time to rewatch Django on chain. I was like, okay, well let's enjoy Django for what it is, 1966, uh, and the wider spaghetti western era because we've done another Sergio director's corner. Yeah, with Leone back in episode mm-hmm. 40. That's going a long way back a long now. Time. Like, oh, my God. Uh, and like you said earlier, he sort of pioneered the Spaghetti Western and all the you know, the tropes that come with it, the anti-heroes, the questionable morals, um, the musical score with uh, whistles and whips and you know the repeating director-star relationships where you see a lot of the same directors and stars just basically playing the same roles and making the same films over and over again. So there's a bit of that consumerism side there but I think what's so interesting about Kabuchi having done a little bit of research like you I haven't watched any of his other films but mm-hmm. I looked a few into them in terms of the Tarantino connection you look at The Great Silence which I think he made like right after um, this film after Django a couple years after uh, which is actually one of the only ones that doesn't also star Franco Nero who's in The Mercenary and Companeros and a bunch of other films that he mm-hmm. did uh, but the other Tarantino comparison there is that that's one of the only spaghetti westerns that takes place in the snow. If you want to look at the Hateful Eight, mm. and then of course there's the uh, Dalton, uh, Rick Dalton in spaghetti westerns thing, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is very much an era that Tarantino loves. Oh yeah, um, we don't have to go too much into Tarantino discussion beyond that. Uh, but the other thing that Kabuchi does is uh, in terms of. Uh, messing with the tropes, subverting the tropes by making it in a snowy environment. Uh, but in that film, he also doubles down on the silent protagonist by literally making him a mute character. So I think the difference here between Leone and Kabuchi is Kabuchi is a bit more experimental with the spaghetti western tropes. Mm. Um, Django feels a bit more like it's doubling down on those tropes. Uh, you know, the, the, the anti-hero protagonist... Maybe he's a little bit more selfish than he is heroic at times. Yeah. Um, again, the musical score, which is amazing. We can talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I thoroughly Good. enjoyed Django for what it was. And I, I was surprised at how kind of simple the story was, especially compared to something like Once Upon a Time in the West. There's a lot more layers, a lot more character arcs going on in that film. Yeah, i got to um, check the uh, composer for this one because it wasn't Morricone. It was not. No, I did notice that. Yes, because obviously Morricone from Once Upon a Time in the West, a lot of Sergio Leone's films, sort of the John Williams of this era, really. Yeah, in a lot of ways. And he only passed away a few years ago. No, the composer for Django is actually Louis Bakalov. Bakalov. Aha. There you go. No connection to Bakalova, Maria Bakalova. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head, obviously. One of the cornerstones of the uh, Spaghetti Western era like you said, we've got the anti-hero protagonists. Yep. Um, definitely dialing the gritty realism mm. up. I think there's a distinct difference between a Kabuchi film and a Leone film in that sense. I think that there's realism definitely in uh, Leone films, but the violence definitely goes to another level. I mean, there's no uh, men getting their hands trampled by horses. No. Like there is in a Kabuchi. He is getting cut. Yes. Which is another Tarantino reference. I'm sorry. Had to get one more in there <laughs> for Reservoir Dogs. Uh, he really I... bloody loves Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah. <laughs> really loves Capucci's work. My goodness. Pretty linear storytelling, though. I yeah. mean, it goes against the, the trend often. I think there's quite a few non-linear um, stories over time or a lot of back and forth. But yeah. um, definitely 
um, linear narrative right here following our protagonist, our... Um, I actually thought this, you know, I, I heard of the Great Silence, and I actually thought this character was going to be mute. Of course, he, he, ah, was, okay. he wasn't. He starts chatting away. Um, he was pretty chatty, actually. <laughs> um, I'm a big, I do quite like this film. I, I love its minimalism and locations. It almost feels like there's only yeah. two, maybe three. I mean, there's the valley, basically, with the bridge, and then the town. Yeah, the the mud-soaked town. Everyone's all hiding in the bar. I guess the third location would be the graveyard, which we only really see twice. Mm. Um, but you're right. It's a very condensed 90-minute film. Uh, even the act breaks. There's, there's fade to blacks right on those 30- and 60-minute marks. Mm. So the act breaks are very clear. Um, lack of locations. Uh, so, yeah, I was quite surprised from that standpoint of how sort of small scale this is in a lot of ways. But then you also have you know these big swaths of extras, especially... Uh, where Major Jackson brings in all these men uh, for that initial Gatling gun scene, which is <laughs> doesn't get much cooler than that, Zig, I just got to yeah. say. <laughs> uh, but let's reel it back a little bit. Let's go to the start. I love that really the two things we're introduced to at the start of this film. Obviously, you've got the opening credits where he's just dragging this coffin through. And I love the simplicity of that being this five-minute scene where you're right, there's no words being spoken. So I can totally see why you would assume he's a mm. protagonist. Um, well into the first, I guess, 10 minutes of this film. But him dragging that coffin, seeing his back, it, it sort of showcases, obviously, um, the dread, I suppose, of what he's doing. I mean, at this point, it's a driving question. We don't know what's in that coffin yeah. for a good while for the film. And it is quite interesting because it's that, um, that first shot that's just basically that long take and obviously mm. kabuchi films there that's sort of another big difference there i i, th- I mean leone definitely has his long takes too but they're normally from a stagnant car- uh, camera point of view yeah um whereas kabuchi is doing these big long close-ups to all like close-ups to extreme wide shots mm. that go on forever and they even have like the planet of the apes zooms yes that's been popular in the 60s <laughs> yeah that varifocal um not losing that depth of field there yeah yeah um yeah, and it's that first. I think over the opening titles that goes for nearly three, four minutes. That yeah, it's it's a while, and it's a nice way to set up the tone. And it's not even just the 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 um the dread of it. I was saying earlier, it's the loneliness. You know, this is a lone wolf in this big western town, and that leads to the second scene where um, he meets Maria, who's we're introduced to her by being attacked by two different groups. Of course, this ends up being the I guess the KKK and then the Mexican revolutionist or i guess reversed Mm -hmm. we introduced the mexican revolutionist first uh but just this idea of like we see the group herd mentality of here's a group of people attacking this woman here's another group of people attacking this woman and it's the lone ranger you know the north soldier if you will that comes and and saves her so i thought that was interesting right off the bat to sort of show that but despite this sort of archetypal setup and i want to jump ahead too much but you know with all these different groups and alliances it seems very clear at first the black and white line of you know who's the heroic savior and who are the evil people but that line gets gray pretty quickly and i think by the Mm. end of the film it feels like there's almost no real winners at all no it is definitely um a film that at times makes you think i think that our main protagonist is not going to live through this encounter. I think oh, I was certain he would be dead <laughs> by um, the end of the film <laughs> and is quite gravely wounded. I mean, it's fair to say that we don't know if he dies of his wounds after the fact he's sure, sure. in a, in a very rough state. I mean, at this point he'd had his hands been trampled on there, 
clearly broken. Yeah. Um, and um, he's sort of riddled with with wounds at this point, and you know he sort of stumbles across the horizon as the mm-hmm. Django music plays in there at the the graveyard. It's a great, uh, so epic. Well, it's a great so last <laughs> last sort of build, you know, there where he's having to figure out how to shoot a gun without really using his fingers. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's like, a man who up until this point is such a, a badass, is so mortally wounded that, yeah, you're absolutely certain this is his last hurrah and he's going to die. And you're pretty confident he's going to take out the big baddie. But, and I was actually kind of surprised that we don't get that clear confirmation on screen that he... Yeah, he clearly seems to survive. Yeah, and and win. But to that point, I think you're right. The fact that he's so trampled and messed up, and that a lot of what we like about him initially seems to be uh, sort of juxtaposed by his inability to move on mm. because he's doing all this stuff, you know, dragging this coffin around. That he's ultimately trying to sell in quotation marks for the gold. He's going to live leave by his you know wife's grave, and. You know, when, when Maria's like, we can run away together, he rejects that idea. He's so yeah. scared of moving on from his own past. And ultimately, that's what kind of messes everything up when he dies for the gold in the quicksand. And so I, I think that is, it's his, I guess, his biggest wound or character flaw, I should say. And it ultimately messes him up. I was surprised. And I honestly think maybe Maria should have died in that moment as well. I think it's a little weird that she survives. She's bleeding out. Yeah. <laughs> well, even the even the barkeep gets shot. Like it's just everyone. Dies. Everyone dies. Everyone yeah. dies. And I and I love that but we because don't know it's so Maria Western. doesn't die. Like, That's true. Out. Like, but just like the confirmation, I suppose that like he really has lost in rejecting her love. He ends up getting her killed anyway, mm. which is the thing he was worried about in the first place. I like that idea. And I think the film does it enough. She's mortally wounded. They lose the gold. Yeah. Like, everyone's beaten down to their absolute lowest. So it's fine that they don't all just, like, die. But in a way, they all still die. <laughs> That's the moral of the story. It's, yeah, it's no, all spiralling downwards. It's definitely darker than a, than a Leone film. I mean, mm. if you take Once Upon a Time in the West, the yep. you know, harmonica, despite having that very tortured past, you know, we get that big reveal at the end there. And But he does kill the baddie and mm. ride off into the sunset, you know? Mm. And um, even in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, you know, the bad guy dies and and Eastwood survives and rides off into the sunset. There's there's definitely a positive, <laughs> there's always a positive fantastical ending to a Leone film, whereas yep. Kabuchi has definitely gone a way more grim reality and has massive focuses on minority persecution. I mean, mm. you know, our big introduction to, uh, I'm going to get his name up, Major Jackson, um, is that he is killing uh, civilians. He's letting them run yep. off and think they've got away, and then he shoots them from afar. Mm. And, um, you know, he's this purely evil man, a Tarantino-esque evil man. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, and I don't want to obviously keep tying it, but, you know, it's good to see that we, you know, we take such a contemporary and well-known director and we're able to explicitly link some of his styles, you know, and see these origins in, in what Kabuchi's done here. And, yeah. That um, it's lived on, and and the fact that you know Django and Chan. I mean, I we sort of joked earlier when we did the poll that included this film. I was shocked that this uh, won the poll over the birds from Alfred Hitchcock, and I think a big part of the reason is because the name Django, um, which I was surprised neither of us used as our fun fact at the start, is that the mm-hmm. name Django was 
you know, frivolously ripped off so many, literally hundreds of times after this film came out, just based on its popularity, to try and get people to walk into the theater thinking that we're seeing another Django movie. And there was a real sequel in the late 80s that wasn't as well received. Uh, but, you know, like you said, bringing the, na- the Django name into the 2010s, like Tarantino did, and, and reinvigorated life into this film yet again, mm. I think it's amazing. And I, I think it's so interesting why I think it's so good to tie them and, like you said, talk about that legacy is that Kabuchi dies in 1990. He mm. never sees a Tarantino film. Yeah. Like, that's that's, that's tragic. close. <laughs> yeah, he is. But it's, it, to me, that, that shows you that legacy right there. You know, mm. this is a guy that has influenced this young man who's working in a cinema who has now come on to be one of the biggest film directors for the smallest catalogue of movies yeah. ever. <laughs> and has such a distinct style that has influenced pop culture in the last two decades yeah and it's linked back to this italian director that never saw one of his movies <laughs> um uh that's the beauty of of cinema history right there so i want to talk a little bit about the representation of i'm going to keep calling them the kkk i know there's a little bit of disparity there the red scarves the red scar exactly that's literally what i wrote the red scarves um well i think they're actually on wikipedia they're called something else the red they're actually not called the red scarves, but they're referred to as the red... Oh, maybe red coats is probably what it was referring to. Um, but like you said, racist ex-confederate in particular is is the key word there. But I, I do love the colour coding there, or the colour theory, the fact that they're wearing red as opposed to the, you know, the white cloak iconography that we're probably more used to today and that was used in uh, Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have... Uh, the Mexican revolutionists as well, that actually a lot of them were wearing blue scarves. So I actually found a bit of the colour theory going on this film quite interesting. Yeah, a lot to of binary opposition. Like yeah. yeah. And it's that thing where it's, you know, he's not trying to create this Dances with Wolves story where, mm. um, you know, there's the you know the ethical and racial minority being persecuted and they're, they're all the good guys and it's the horrible white people that are... No, mm. I mean, he talks about the... You know, he's showing us the corruption of General Hugo too and yeah. and that side of it and how these guys come rolling into town and obviously go to the barkeeper's tavern and they both take advantage of the of the local girls there mm. um, and are both as abhorrent and horrible and there's definitely that cynical aspect there. Um, obviously, there's there are probably more positive representations, but then we watch Hugo's men get completely and utterly ambushed and wiped out and he yeah. dies in a very uh, unceremonious way. He yeah, just... I think that's it. As like the, the, the lines between good and evil become so blurred as the film progresses, you're right. You sort of run out of people to root for <laughs> by the end of the film. Even Django, to an extent, I mean, the one big like whoa moment for me, and this is kind of a small moment in the grand scheme of things, is when he's trying out, he's, he's showing the general the Gatling gun, and he does that by shooting the entire um, alcohol stock in the bar. It's like, bro, that's a, this guy's been bullied enough as it is. You're just shooting up all his stock now. <laughs> but like for me, that was a legitimate moment of like, wow, like Django's not the all-heroic mm. Western character I was thinking they were about to build up. And yeah. it's just that little moment there. And there's definitely a murkiness to it. There's a, there's a grittiness to it. I mean, in the, even in his first interaction with Maria, he yeah, he does save Maria, but then sort of, you know, he, he takes his time. He watches mm. her get... 
And you know, I know there's, there's <laughs> he does take his time. He actually, does. Yeah. He observes. <laughs> he waits for the uh, the red scarfs, the KKK guys, to come along, kill the Mexicans, and mm. then he goes and interferes. Yeah. But he doesn't jump to rescue her straight away at first sight. No, he observes. Yeah. He's, He's got to drag back. that coffin around, mate. It takes him a while to get around. This is true. This is true. <laughs> him dragging that coffin is like me dragging our film gear on cradle just <laughs> through the rocks, <laughs> tearing it up. <laughs> It's the most durable coffin. Ever. <laughs> Such an iconic thing. look, though. Like it is, yeah. And you think awesome. like the that's another one of the things those over symbolic things. Like you know, with yeah, the, it's not know, overly with, subtle, with, is it? Yeah. With a Leone, um, you know, man with no name, with that that iconic desert poncho or harmonica, where you've yeah. got him playing a character playing a harmonica, or now you've got Kabuchi with this character that's either mute if it's um the great silence i'm pretty sure navajo joe has some probably iconic iconography stuff going on there and um you know you take this film where it's a dude carrying a coffin around for 85 percent of the film (laughs) you know and then i and you think once again oh where does that link into tarantino's influences well hateful eight all char- all the characters are obscenely mm. iconic in their look. Yeah. And have little quirks to them. You know, you've got two characters that are chained together. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, you have this African-American bounty hunter. Yeah, yeah. In this iconic yellow-trimmed coat, like... The thing, the thing that I love about the coffin as well, because like, like I said earlier, it is sort of that driving question for a good chunk of the... the first half of the film before you realize that it's hosting the the gatling gun of course which is a great reveal and i love that when he's crouching there before he pulls out the gun it's a very similar stance to when he's crouching behind the grave at the end of the film so it's almost like a moment where he seems weak but isn't really then replicated twice um but when he's directly asked about that coffin he replies um like is there someone in the coffee he says yeah and his name is Django. so I guess he calls his gun Django, but the other metaphorical thing we can look into is that he considers himself as deaf because he kills a lot of people in this film. <laughs> I think he also he's dead, like dead inside. You know, yeah, I mean, he's yeah. lost his family and and all that. So, um, there's definitely those links there. It's it's a very cool reveal. It's kind of yeah. that's what it's one of those moments you just get that Tarantino boot shot in there. Yeah, <laughs> you're good to go. Chekhov's gun, but a, a very literal gun in this scenario. <laughs> How he handles it, just with such ease. I, I've always yeah. loved monster, guns in those man. early spaghetti westerns or even just like early film where you just get the noise and there's maybe sometimes a little muzzle flash, but like mostly oh, yeah. it's just guys going, oh, oh yeah, they're just, <laughs> they're just, <laughs> just falling die. over chaotically. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I mean, he's a... He's a total badass, but like I said, it's the, the idea is sort of mystified, and I think part of that is we. It's not like there's a lot of moments where we see Django do something off screen that seems really cool. Um, we see everything that he does, and I think a big example of that is the scene when he's going to sneak back into that back room to get the gold, mm. and there's no mysticism to the audience of like, oh my god, how did he do that? How did he trick the guards? We see the entire process of him. You know, bringing the other girl up, getting her to undress by the window so the guards are distracted while he climbs out and, you know, does his little parkour movements <laughs> while bringing the coffin with him. That's another big one. Yeah. Is That's definitely slowing him down. He finds a way. Yeah, he, he finds a way. But I think I think that goes a long way into breaking the mysticism behind Django. And, like, the film is called Django and it's such a cool name and he's such a cool legend of a, of a character. 
um, that's been referenced so many times later in history. Um, but with that being said, yeah, we we see all of the not the flaws in his plan, but we see every aspect of the plan, which ma- makes him less of a mysterious character. Mm. And then by the end of the film, when he is mortally wounded and he's struggling to to put the gun in place and ready to shoot, it's you feel like all that mysticism is completely gone. He's just like a broken man at this point, and yet he still prevails. Yeah. So I like that little one eighty do at the end because I I had literally and I hate to admit this I had already logged the film on Letterboxd before I realized that he wasn't going to die at the end. That's how sure I was that the movie was going to end with him dying by the grave of his ex, of his uh, past wife, and that was the end of the movie. But I still settled on the same score even afterwards. <laughs> so who wins in a fight, Jamie Fox Django, or <laughs> in a Django versus Django? world i guess it depends which period of django unchained the start of the film or the end of the (laughs) do you reckon he wins in the end of the maybe i think taron it's funny because this film does as well but tarantino's django it's very much by the end it's it's so comical how victorious he is in that moment you know killing everyone and blowing the building and riding away on the horse of his wife i guess spoilers for django unchained Mm. i suppose (laughs) but it's like it's it's so hilariously done like comedically victorious that he kind of does you think i guess he would have to beat 60s django purely because of that franco nero (laughs) versus jamie fox let's go (laughs) for the for the rules of the film um but then again there's like i said there's the demystification of the 60s django to the point where Perhaps he does seem mortally wounded and that he tricks Jamie Foxx's Django into thinking that he's he's not as uh, strong or prepared to fight as he might actually be. Mm. So, I don't know. It's a good question, Zeke. I no do. Worries. Do you have anything like else you would like to add, Jake? Yeah, so we mentioned a little earlier, I do like the, the desolate, empty town and just like it's all full of mud and gross. So, I like the visual storytelling that's gone on. Like I said, it's very different from a traditional uh, Western, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um Let's talk about that dub. <laughs> so we watched this film. Uh, well, I guess you started watching the film through a public YouTube video that's just of the film. Fairly good mm-hmm. quality from, from memory. But it's an English dub version of, I guess, what would be an Italian um, spoken yes, film. Ita- and I did find and a scene with the, obviously, the, the mother tongue. Yeah. Yes, the mother tongue. I like it. Um, that was an interesting dub that... <laughs> Not good. It was not good. But it's one of those things that obviously I really do feel like this film, you know, like I said, it had this Western success too. Yes. You know, I'm I'm looking at its box office pool. I mean, this film in Italy grossed a billion dollars. Whoa, Nelly. Like, can you believe it? Um, (laughs) It'd be interesting to see uh, where, what it pulled over here domestically, in quotations. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. It's not it's not the best uh, English dub. Um, no, but but in all fairness, I think a lot of other countries and, and different language speaking folk have probably dealt with a lot worse than we have. Yeah. <laughs> We're pretty privileged in our position to have ninety nine percent of our media. It's tough done to in find. English. It is tough to find the Italian version. Like I, I'm still gonna look and see if I can find one. There's got to be like a like a old DVD somewhere, even a VHS. Yeah, you probably have to buy it. Um, I wonder if uh, you can buy Django, 1966 DVD. I know Sean Baker reviewed this film on Letterboxd and mentioned, um, here we go, the uh, Argent Films Blu-ray release 
Arrow box set that was released in January. January of, let me find out what year. 2019, I guess, is when he posted that review. It's got a bunch of uh, extra features. But oh, it is a Blu-ray. It is, he does clarify it's a Blu-ray. I've got a $7 DVD on eBay. Mm. But that you might buy it and it could be the English dub. Yes. You don't know? Could be walking into muddy territories there. Zeke. Very muddy. What was your highlight scene for Django? Um, I'm going to go with that first reveal of the Gatling gun. I think the, mm. the build-up's really good there. And um, it, I genuinely, if it wasn't for the thumbnail with him holding the Gatling gun, I don't think I would have predicted uh, ahead of time what it was. Um, I see, I forgot thought, about that thumbnail, so I, I complete shock to me. Yeah. Um, I generally wondered if it was empty, if there was a body in there, or what was going on. Yeah. It's just such a good scene. It's cool. It makes violence cool, which is sort of, in a nutshell... <laughs> which we like. Well, it, and it is. It's such a different way of looking at... You know, I was watching the film and I was like, you know, I've always loved Westerns. Like, it's mm. one of my favourite periods. And I find that, you know, when you're, you know, you're that young filmmaker and it's like, we live in a, you know, a place where the desert's not that far away. Sure. So it's like, it is a, a bit baffling that there haven't been that many Westerns here uh, made in Australia mm. over the time. I mean, I can think of only one locally, and then we've had, you know, a couple others, but they're, they're generally not made here, and I always wondered why. And But I sometimes because think... they don't appeal to white women in their 50s. So apparently all WA films are good for them. Yeah. Um, Ooh, you're coming out firing today. That you know, with, between that and the writer's strike. I'm with the writer's strike, folks. Yeah, you've got that Django, that Django trigger. Coming out there with a Gatling gun full of words. <laughs> firing on all cylinders. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting. But I also think that it's like the thing that Spielberg said, where it's like, I really don't think people that want to make westerns in the modern day actually have ever watched that many westerns right. because for me this was such a tonal whiplash compared mm. to what i had consumed or conceived as a western beforehand which is you know the leone western where this is you know obviously being in a in italians having that dub there but also yeah the hyper violence for mm -hmm. the time and and honestly having a significantly more depressing world to be inhabiting a grittier and more real one yeah um part of that as well you got to figure is the haze code from the 20s to the 50s so if, especially american audiences probably they're just out of that period of cinema that's so clean and squeaky mm. and then to see something like this on their screens whoo oh nelly what about you <laughs> my highlight scene without being facetious in any way shape or form zeke is the scene where the women are wrestling in the mud because if you don't know how to market this film with a scene where women get in the mud and wrestle, I don't know how else you advertise this film to a 60s audience. Yep. It's true. That's it. That's I kind of get say. what you're saying. I get what you're saying. <laughs> and obviously that that aspect of um, so just that grim reality. like, And it really, in that scene, we really get to see how gritty and horrible the world is. Yeah. yeah. But also, 1960s audience, they're into it. Excellent. They love to see it. Well, the English dub version of Django is currently out on YouTube. Uh, speaking of uh, YouTube, or I guess streaming platforms, Jake, what's this? Tried. Tried. It's also on Plex, which is a free to watch, basically oh, another SBS on demand sort of oh, service. Oh, interesting. I should have um, watched on that then. Yeah. So Maybe that, that doesn't have the English dub. 
I don't know. I'll check it after the show. Mm. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Quite a bit. We have The Mother coming to Netflix. Sees Jennifer Lopez as an assassin who must come out of hiding to protect the daughter she left earlier in life. Ooh. Mate, how could you? I guess she has people awesome. to kill. Uh, you've also got the Hannah Gatsby special, Something Special. So if you're into her, there you go. Coming to stand, we have season three of The Great. So that's the entire season. Uh, dropping with Ellie Fanning. Who I, I would love to watch that show at some point. Looks solid. You've also got No Time to Die coming to stand for the Bond fans out there. I really need to start watching Bond films, Zeke. You don't need to watch that film. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I need to watch Doctor No, though. Yeah. That's that's an octopusy. Those are very important Bond films. Mm-hmm. I need to get watching. Coming to Disney Plus, we have Crater, which is a young child, Caleb, relocated to an idyllic faraway planet following his father's death. And to fulfill his dying wish, Caleb brings three of his best friends to hijack a rover to explore the mysterious uh, titular crater. I had t- titular in there because, you know, mm. that is it is what it is. Unless it's a different crater from the one that the title refers to. I don't know, Zeke. Uh, Midsommar comes to Prime Video this week. Uh, Smile and Halloween Ends comes to Binge this week. You've also got Halloween Kills coming to Netflix. Uh, so you've got both of those there if you want to ping-pong those. Apple TV Plus is getting a documentary called Still, which is actually about Michael J. Fox and his struggle with Parkinson's. Very interested to see that, actually. Mm. It sounds great. Saw the trailer. He's very involved in it. It's a big... Uh, piece to camera with lots of behind the scenes stuff for Back to the Future and having Family Ties as a show he's in. Lots of stuff like yes. that. So I'm very excited to see that. Coming to cinemas, we have Infinity Pool, which sees Mia Goff and Alexandra Skarsgård, or Matson, if you prefer, as a couple on a vacation venture outside the resort grounds who find themselves in a culture of violence, hedonism, and untold horror. It's funny, I only just saw this word for the first time hedonism and now i'm seeing it everywhere mm. it's coming up everywhere zeke so i don't that's it's starting Just to popping up everywhere me. yeah but i'm excited that's definitely more of like your a24 vibes um elevated horror yes is what i'm getting the vibe of so i might i might catch that that, that feels like it will be in streaming any day now yeah. in addition to cinemas so i might might wait on that one uh you got hypnotic which sees ben affleck as a detective who learns his missing daughter may be connected to a series of high-profile bank robberies. And I'm only just realizing now, Zeke, that might be the same daughter that Jennifer Lopez has, who's the assassin. I True. It's, I reckon it's all connected. Oh, I just thought it was the sequel to The Town. <laughs> it could be. You never know. Actually, I'm hearing it's not great, Hypnotic. Oh, hearing it's not very good. Lucky. The Town all. is great. Yeah, i got to get onto that. It was a good film. Which I haven't seen. My boss mixed it. No, was it that or Gone Baby Gone? He mixed one of those two. Also a good film. Oh, well, there you Not go. a terrible film. Like a good film. Yeah. We yeah. like to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get into it one day. I'm sure I will. Um, I prefer Casey Affleck over Ben Ooh, Affleck. Fair enough. I'll take. I feel like Casey Affleck's more of like, he's on the down low. Yeah. But he's kind of like... um. And then he does, like, Manchester by the Sea and wins an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. And then more recently, A Ghost Story, which I only saw a few weeks ago. Um, I'm thinking the Franco brothers as well. Yes. That's kind of a similar relationship, or especially now. Mm. Bye, James. <laughs> also coming to cinemas this week, you got Love Again, which features a young woman who tries to ease the pain of her fiancé's death by sending romantic texts to his old number and forming a connection with a man who begins responding to her. Oh, spicy. Uh, this Tuesday the 9th at Luna, 
You have a Q&A screening with the director of Gravel Road, a documentary that follows a four-piece band called Desert Stars and the traditional landowners of Spiny Fix Country in the Great Victoria Desert, home of the last nomads. And they will also be performing live at this screening. So it's tomorrow the night at Luna. Very exciting. That's pretty cool. And finally, The Book Club, the next chapter, is the sequel we've all been waiting for, Zeke. Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Mary Steenbergen, and Candice Bergen all bring their book club to Italy for a cross-country adventure. Yeah, that sounds right up our alley, Zeke. Yep, that sounds like that was designed for my demographic. <laughs> the mid-50s white women of Western Australia. That's, that's me. Uh, <laughs> that's what I identify as. Oh, excellent. Good. Well, you're very, you should be very excited for that. It's in cinemas Absolutely. later this week. Jake, we're almost getting to the end of our countdown through the decade mm, retrospective or four or whatever we call yeah. it. Um, <laughs> whatever we call it. We used something. to call it retrospective. I don't know if it's called that anymore. I think it's just got a number now. Uh, we I, simplified I, I'm not, it. I'm not contributing to this name change thing. This is all on you, mate. I yeah, don't know. it's head of creative. <laughs> I, whatever you say, I go with. Okay? Put that on my IMDb credit. <laughs> head, <laughs> head of creative. Of creative. Um, uh, for, uh, but yeah, yeah obviously. Co-producer. We've got uh, <laughs> two... <laughs> Um, decades left to do for this year's countdown through the decade. We're into the 1940s, no 50s. No 50s. So we got three to go. We got three, but we, we got two polls left that's to what, post to Instagram. Yeah. So. so we're getting towards the end, the back yes. end. Moving into the 1950s, Jake. Two films were put up, only one walked away. Mm. What are we watching next week? Yeah. So the poll was pretty tight this week, 12 to 10, against Sunset Boulevard. So this is, I think this is the first film to be up for two polls across all of our countdown through the decades and lost both times uh, but it's okay because uh i put it up last time and you put it up this time so no one's ready for our no, close-up no one just wants to yeah watch sunset boulevard you what you said was cleverer screw you <laughs> well we're watching instead next week i'm very excited bergman the seventh seal A medieval knight challenges death to a chess game to save himself and his friends. I like how vague that is. Very good. It's a Swedish film. Yeah, yeah. Very. I. I can. I can. I. I can't speak. <laughs> I can. Iconic. Yep. Icon. Iconography. Famed image of the two playing chess together on, I guess, the side of a beach. For memory, famous I'm black and white image. Not gonna lie. Before this poll, didn't know anything about it. Oh, so. Well, to be fair, I don't know very much about it either, other than that. So, so I'm excited. We also found uh, a version that we can watch, so that's great. That's not very dubbed. good. So little wins. Yeah, uh, you can get the stupidly expensive Criterion version, the Bergman Collection, or Apple. You mentioned Apple also have this up for rent and purchase. Yes. So if you want to do it that way, you are more than welcome to. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The Seventh Seal.